If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're about to hear the first episode in our new series on Tutankhamun. We'll be releasing episodes weekly on this feed. But if you really enjoyed this first one and you want to binge on the next five episodes right now, you can do that by signing up to our premium subscription feed, History Extra Plus. There, you can get early access to our series and ad-free access to all of our usual podcasts for just $1.99 a month. To sign up and find out more, Follow the link in this episode's podcast description. I hope you enjoy the episode. On the 26th of November 1922, Egyptologist Howard Carter stood on the brink of glory. Glory, at this particular moment, took the form of a dusty ancient doorway carved into the rocky floor of Egypt's Valley of the Kings. Many years of work had led Carter to this point, Years of historical investigation and tireless excavation, not to mention the backbreaking toil of his team of workers, tasked with removing tons of debris from the valley floor. What lay beyond the sealed entranceway? At this moment, Carter could only guess. But it would turn out to be a discovery beyond his wildest dreams, the most spectacular ancient Egyptian tomb ever uncovered and not just any ancient Egyptian, but a pharaoh. His name? Tutankhamun. In the centuries since his tomb was excavated, Tutankhamun has enjoyed a glittering afterlife. Across the globe, he's become the icon of ancient Egypt, his treasures touring the world as a blockbuster exhibition, his instantly recognisable gold and blue mask, recreated in endless fancy dress costumes and school art projects. In this podcast series, we're going to be marking the centenary of Carter's great discovery by exploring Tutankhamun's life, death and legacy. 
We'll travel back to the ancient empire the boy king ruled over and re-examine the contents of his tomb to investigate what his dazzling treasures and mummified remains can tell us about ruling and dying in ancient Egypt. In this first episode, we're going to be taking a look at the discovery that sparked this all off to take us back to that eventful excavation in the early 20th century. I spoke to two leading experts in Egyptology's golden age. Dr. Okasha Eldali is an honorary senior research fellow at UCL, whose books include Egyptology, The Missing Millennium. And Professor Toby Wilkinson is an Egyptologist whose books include A World Beneath the Sands, Adventurers and Archaeologists in the Golden Age of Egyptology. And most recently, Tutankhamun's Trumpet, the story of ancient Egypt in 100 objects. So let's start with that exhilarating moment of discovery. Over to Toby. 100 years ago, on the 26th of November, 1922, at four o'clock in the afternoon, um, Howard Carter stood at the end of a corridor cut into the bedrock of the Valley of the Kings. And with him were three companions, um, his aristocratic patron, Lord Carnarvon, uh, and Carnarvon's daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert, both of them recently arrived from England, um, and uh, an English uh, friend called Arthur Callender, who's an engineer. And the four of them stood at the end of this corridor, and in front of them stood a blocked-up doorway. And the doorway was plastered, and in the plaster were the impressions of a seal. Not just any seal, but the seal of the ancient Egyptian royal necropolis. Um, and at this point, Carter and his companions knew that what lay in front of them was a royal tomb. Well, with his three companions looking on, Carter took his chisel and carefully opened a small hole in the blocked doorway. Then he put in a lit candle to test for noxious gases. Um, and when it was all clear, he peered through the hole into the gloom beyond. And we have a, an account in Carter's excavation journal of that remarkable day. He called it the day of days because what he saw as his eyes grew accustomed to the, the dim light um, was, in his own words, gold everywhere, the glint of gold. Um, it was the most extraordinary royal treasure, um, the greatest royal treasure ever discovered intact in Egypt or indeed anywhere else in the world. Um, and it was um, undoubtedly the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. So this must have been incredibly exciting for Carter. How do you think he would have felt at that time? Oh, can you put yourself in his feet, a great uh, excavator like him who spent quite a number of years thinking his work was going to be in vain. He's been trying very hard to find the royal tomb and everybody told him before there was no point wasting your time and the money of Lord Carnarvon, of course, his backer. And it must have been the most exciting moment of any excavator to come across a royal tomb, as Toby said, with the royal seal of the necropolis. I wonder if we could rewind now a little bit to give listeners some context. So Carter was digging in the Valley of the Kings in the early 20th century. What was happening in Egyptology then? What was the state of the field? The early 20th century is, is what is sometimes called the golden age of Egyptology. It was an era of great discoveries, the length and breadth of Egypt. It was an era in which archaeology was um, funded by uh, museums and private patrons and where really the quality of the work very much depended upon who the patron 
engaged as their lead archaeologist. As uh, Alcacher has said, um, Carter was one of the finest archaeologists of his generation. He wasn't the sort of dynamite archaeologist of earlier uh, generations. He was a meticulous man. He had been working in the Valley of the Kings since the early 20th century under a variety of different patrons and perhaps knew that site better than anybody else um, at the time. But the, the permit for the Valley of the Kings in the early 20th century um, belonged to an American called Theodore Davis. And Theodore Davis thought that he had exhausted what the Valley of the Kings had to offer and very famously wrote in, uh, in a book he published in 1912 Uh, The Valley of the Tombs of the Kings is now exhausted. In other words, there's nothing left to find. He then returned the permit, uh, went back to New York and and died shortly afterwards. Now, Carter uh, knew better, or he thought he knew better. He felt in his bones that there was still one undiscovered tomb uh, left in the Valley of the Kings and persuaded his patron, Lord Carnarvon, to snap up the permit and then to start excavation. But, you know, it's a long and painstaking process And even Carnarvon's great fortune was not inexhaustible. And by 1922, he thought, enough is enough. Uh, I can't keep pouring money into into this. I'm going to call it a day. And it was only because Carter went to Carnarvon in his stately home in England and pleaded for one more season that Carnarvon eventually relented. And of course, the result a few weeks later was the discovery. Okay, so we've got two key figures in this excavation. Howard Carter, the man on the ground working with his team in the field, and Lord Carnarvon, the wealthy backer funding Carter's work. It's worth taking a look at both of these figures in a bit more depth. And let's start with Carter. As Toby said, by the time he discovered Tutankhamun's tomb, Carter had been working in Egypt for several years. In fact, the Englishman's career in Egyptology had actually begun when he was just 17, working on archaeological surveys of the country. From there, Carter went on to work in Egypt's Antiquities Department, and he supervised excavations of some other pretty notable royal tombs, including that of the female pharaoh Hatshepsut. So by the time of his search for Tutankhamun, Carter was a well-known figure in the Valley of the Kings, who'd built up quite the reputation for himself. He was, I think, like a lot of single-minded people, he was quite hard to get along with. He didn't suffer fools at all, let alone gladly. Uh, He was very determined, very sure that he was right. And a good example of that was earlier on in his career, where he was... um, appointed uh, Chief Inspector of Antiquities for for Lower Egypt. That's the area around Cairo. And uh, amongst the the monuments under his care was the underground catacombs of of the sacred bulls called the Serapium. And in one infamous uh, incident, a group of French tourists, who I think had probably been drinking, got into an argument uh, with Carter they felt that they hadn't got their money's worth visiting the Serapium. He asked them to leave, and you can imagine he might have done that quite um, abruptly. And the result was that fists flew and there was an altercation. Now, at the time, the British colonial authorities were very keen not to antagonise the French um, and so demanded Carter issue an apology. He felt that he'd done nothing wrong, refused to apologise, even though it would have cost him nothing. And so he was sacked from from that important position and then had to fall back on his earlier um, 
skill as a, as a watercolour painter to eke out a living selling uh, pictures to tourists. So it just goes to illustrate, I think, the kind of implacable character of Carter, which was his weakness, but it was also his strength. And it gave him that single-minded determination to, to find what he believed still lay undiscovered. And what do we know about his patron, Lord Carnarvon? What motivated Carnarvon to pour so much money into what may well have ended up as an empty hole? Lord Carnarvon was, was of course, uh, an incredibly wealthy aristocrat. Um, not only had he inherited his own family wealth, but um, he'd, he'd married um, a very wealthy heiress. And he had a great passion for speed. He loved uh, racing horses, but also cars. And this was the very early days of, of motor cars. And his love of speed got the better of him, and he was involved in a car accident. It must have been one of the earliest car accidents in history. But it left him with permanent rheumatism in his leg, um, and that was exacerbated in the winter by the, the cold, damp weather of England. So he did what a lot of, of um, people did at the time with the money, uh, and they went to spend the winter months in a warmer, drier climate for their health. Uh, and he chose, chose Egypt. And he would stay every winter at the, the Winter Palace Hotel in, in Luxor. Well, Carnarvon was a man who didn't like to stand still, quite literally. He wanted something to, to motivate him, to, to engage his interest. And you can't sit upon the terrace of the Winter Palace at, at Luxor, looking across the Nile, and fail to be captivated by what might lie in those hills. And so he began a, a sort of amateur interest in, in archaeology. And he was persuaded to take that more seriously by... Uh, by the colonial authorities who were looking for wealthy patrons to support archaeology. And he got bitten by the archaeology bug, I think it's fair to say, and he found a, a couple of, of objects fairly early on which spurred him on. Um, and he just developed it as, as one of his interests and decided that he needed a good excavator um, because he was not a trained uh, archaeologist um, and again was, was recommended to to meet Carter, who had fallen out of favour with the authorities, but the authorities recognised in Carter a really good field archaeologist. And the two of them met in, in, in the winter of 1907 to 1908 and forged this partnership. And I think Carter was more or less left to do his own thing. Carnarvon picked up the bill and together, you know, they, they worked for, for 15 years together. With the help of Carnarvon's deep pockets, Carter was able to launch his search for Tutankhamun. But money isn't the only thing you need to find a tomb lost under the desert for thousands of years. You also need some idea about where to start digging. So you say that Carter approached Carnarvon and said, I think there's one great tomb left. Did he think that that tomb belonged to Tutankhamun. What was behind his thinking there? What evidence was he working off that there was something great left to discover? Well, there were three clues um, that Davis's excavations had uncovered in the Valley of the Kings, which led Carter to believe that not just any tomb, but the tomb of Tutankhamun um, lay undiscovered. One was a, 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 a faience uh, cup bearing the name of Tutankhamun, which was found behind a rock. Uh, another was a cache of embalming materials left over from a royal funeral. And the third was some, some fragments of gold foil bearing the name of, of Tutankhamun. Now, all of these clues, Carter almost uniquely was able to piece together to convince himself that 
the tomb of this relatively uh, little-known pharaoh, Tutankhamun, lay somewhere nearby. He knew the Valley of the Kings like the back of his hand. He'd worked there for years. He knew every little nook and cranny. Um, And being the brilliant excavator that he was, he was absolutely convinced that um, uh, uh, something lay there undiscovered. Carter, like most Egyptologists of his days, were very good at following the antique markets and the antique trade. And uh, he could see that there was nothing belonging to Tutankhamun available in the antique market. And that must have given him the idea that, well, his tomb must lay intact somewhere here. So that's another fourth clue to how he came across the idea. What did scholars know about Tutankhamun at the time before the discovery? Because, of course, so much of what we know now is informed by Carter's finds. Indeed, and it's a very good question. And and, and Tutankhamun was a very dim figure in Egyptian history until the discovery of his tomb. A few objects bearing his name had been discovered elsewhere in Egypt, famously a pair of lions from uh, Jebel Barkal in in the Sudan, which entered the collections of the British Museum as its first two Egyptian objects, had been recarved for for Tutankhamun. His name had been found in the eastern desert of Egypt between the Nile Valley and the Red Sea, as far back as, as the 1830s. So the existence of a king called Tutankhamun was known, but very little was known about him. And and actually, one of the interesting things here is that until his mummy was unwrapped, it was assumed that Tutankhamun was an old man when he died. And actually, there were some um, songs composed at the time of the the discovery called Old King Tut, because people just naturally assumed a pharaoh would have lived to a ripe old age. Um, so we didn't even know that he was a boy pharaoh until uh, the tomb was, was properly excavated. So he was one of the most minor kings in terms of historical knowledge. And in fact, of course, he only reigned for about nine years. So in the grand sweep of Egyptian history, he was really just a footnote. But of course, what makes him famous today is that his is the only tomb that's been found largely intact. And of course, the Valley of the Kings is a huge area. You mentioned a couple of clues that Carter was working off. And obviously, this expedition took many, many years to find what they were after. But how did they essentially narrow down an area to search for the tomb in? What Carter knew he had to do in order to uh, find a a lost tomb was to clear the the hundreds of thousands of tonnes of stone chippings which had sort of filled up the floor of the valley. They were the spoil that had come out of, of other tombs and literally just been dumped in the valley floor. And he knew that if he, if he systematically removed all of those chippings and right down to the bedrock, he would find the entrance to any tomb that still lay undiscovered. And so it was years and years of backbreaking work, as he himself describes it, to remove, using a specially built railway, uh, these hundreds of thousands of tons of chippings. And he knew that if he dug uh, deep enough and long enough and cleared the valley, he would be sure that, you know, whether or not there was a tomb. And of course, he then famously um, found the tomb of of, of Tutankhamun actually before he had finished the clearance. And this is one of the intriguing things to archaeologists even today, was that there was a small area of valley floor left uncleared at the time of Tutankhamun's uh, tomb being discovered. And so for those of us who like to feel that there perhaps is something still to discover in the Valley of the Kings, there is just a little tiny glimmer of hope that there might be something else. Carter did actually discover some tombs earlier in the valley as well. Tutankhamun is not the only tomb discovered. 
He also probably discovered the Truman the Valley of the Baboons, uh, and the Western Valley is called. So he, he did a remarkable job, and as Toby said, he started clearing, I think systematically, coming from the top down to the entrance of the valley, and that piece of the Tutankhamun area was left to the last for the same reason. Above it immediately is the huge tomb of Ramesses VI, and who in his right mind will build a royal tomb below that one? And in fact, it was the luck of Tutankhamun that those who dug up the tomb of Ramesses VI throw the debris right immediately outside, thus covering the tomb of Tut. But also remember that the valley uh, has been grown to uh, huge waterfalls and uh, floodings, and that would have pushed in front of it tons and tons of these chippings and, and stones, which of course contributed to the hiding of Tutankhamun's tomb. It was his luck that his tomb disappeared. I want to pause for a moment here, because we're on the brink of Carter's great discovery. The moment that, after many years of gruelling work, he finally unearths the entrance to the greatest intact tomb ever found in the Valley of the Kings. But the thing is, this moment doesn't quite unfold like you might expect. Because it's not actually Carter himself that finds the first evidence of a tomb entrance, but instead, a young boy. This was a boy called Hussein Abdul Rasul, and he was working for Carter's team as a water carrier. On the 4th of November, 1922, Hussein was digging a hole to prop a water jar in the ground when he hit something solid on the valley floor. It was a stone slab which would turn out to be the first step of a staircase leading down to a rubber wall concealing a sealed doorway. That very sealed doorway we heard Toby describe at the very beginning of this podcast. On the 4th of November, it says that an Egyptian young uh, assistant, one of those people who were working with Carter, did actually stumble across what turned out to be the first step that led to the entrance that Toby just described. So it is clear that some of the local Egyptian workers found the steps first. Let us not forget that uh, before 1922 and the, and the final discovery, Carter and his team of workmen had been working away in the Valley of the Kings for seven years. Um, And the workmen, not Carter, had shifted hundreds of thousands of tonnes of rubble. And in a sense, the role of uh, the the young boy, Hussein Abdel Rasul, who who discovered that first step, that has been airbrushed out of history by um, a narrative that has, has... Uh, preferred to focus on the heroic figure of Carter. Actually, he's been hiding in plain sight because when you read Carter's excavation journal for the 4th of November, he very clearly says that when he arrived at the dig on the morning of the 4th of November, he was struck by the silence of normally a very busy workspace. And it was silent because everybody had stopped working. And that alerted Carter to the fact that the first step had been discovered. In other words, Carter arrived on the site long after the workers had begun work at at sunrise. Um, And it was they, not he, who uncovered that first step. But I think in our our tendency to to overplay the the heroic role of Carter, and of course he was a great archaeologist, we have have tended to forget the role of the Egyptian workman who, who made it all possible. While Hussein Abdul Rasul's name may not be remembered like that of Howard Carter, his childhood involvement in this iconic moment in his nation's past clearly stayed with him, even decades on. And I had the great 
personal pleasure of meeting that boy, Sheikh Hussein Habd Rasul, the late one before he died a number of years ago in his West Bank uh, rest house where he had a lovely coffee shop next to the museum. He, of course, had a beautiful picture of him with the, one of the icons of Tutankhamun uh, uh, hanging around his neck. This image of Hussein Abdul Russell was taken by a photographer from New York's Met Museum in the aftermath of the discovery, and it's well worth looking up. About 12 years old, Hussein is dressed in plain white linen, and he's looking at something, or maybe someone, off camera. But your eyes are immediately drawn to his neck, because hanging there is one of the tomb's most spectacular treasures. A massive, ornate, bejeweled chain adorned with golden sun disks and scarab beetles carved from lapis lazuli in a deep, rich blue. I think part of the reason why this photo is so compelling is its incongruity. The opulent treasures of a boy king, worn by a water boy. But Carter's discovery of these dazzling riches was only made possible by the hard work of a whole team of labourers, cooks and attendants like Hussein. Excavation is a group effort. It is not just a, a solo effort by a, a heroic archaeologist. And I think there's been a tendency to overplay the role of the, the archaeologist as hero and downplay the role of, of the many hundreds of people who took part in the excavation of, of Tutankhamun's tomb. But this is a story of excavation in general. We, we have colleagues who come from Western universities or all over the place. They are very passionate about ancient Egypt and they, they, they like to contribute to our field. And Carter was one of those people. Remember, he came to Egypt when he was 17. And for him, Egypt was, and Egyptology was his own field. He treated Egyptian tombs and the Valley of the Kings as if it was his personal property, as it were. Uh, he's, he spent all his career in Egypt. He was a great draftsman. He did a lot of work for uh, very eminent uh, scholars like Petrie. And he learned the techniques of excavation. Remember, he was working at a time when the best method to excavate was to just shoot your way through the tombs and temples. He didn't. He spent more than 10 years working to clear this tomb, document everything, restore everything. So he did a remarkable job. And Carter was very lucky, but it's also years of dedication and hard work on his part. Uh, he was undoubtedly one of the best excavators in Egypt at the time. So he, he was very well equipped and well prepared. And I think Egypt was very lucky that the discovery of Tutankhamun uh, uh, happened at the hands of such very uh, dedicated, passionate excavator. We were very lucky that it was really Carter. Shortly after Carter realised his team had uncovered something really special, he telegrammed Lord Carnarvon to report a, quote, wonderful discovery in the valley and offer his congratulations to his patron. We'll be discussing what exactly the contents of this wonderful discovery were in much more detail in a future episode. So if you're desperate for in-depth descriptions of grisly canopic jars, murals of gods and bejeweled artefacts, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait a little while. But safe to say for the moment, the tomb's contents were impressive. And before long, the world was clamouring to get a look. How quickly did news of the discovery become well-known, become widespread? Oh, very quickly. This was one 
discovery of, the like of which has never been done before. And therefore, the nearly all international uh, news outlet from the States and Europe sent representative to be based permanently, not just in Luxor, but in the West Bank, right outside the tomb, which was actually one of the reasons Carter was always irritated, um, having to entertain all these hundreds of not just journalists, but also visitors, relatives, and et cetera, et cetera. And it was one of the uh, points of conflict with the Egyptian authorities at some point because Carter insisted on limiting the number of visitors and mm, the people who will be re at the receiving end of that cut would have been the Egyptian, uh, especially Egyptian families and officials and their families. Uh, so yes, the, the, the news spread like fire. As news spread of Carter's discovery, it wasn't just the archaeologist himself who was showered with acclaim. His story was used as an advert to glorify British imperial daring do. This is the first royal tomb of its kind. And here is a great British archaeologist and Britain was the uh, um, master of Egypt, as it were, the colonial power, and was for the sake of Britain itself to propagate this as, as a piece of propaganda for its own glory and its own power. And of course, the discovery came um, not long yeah. after the end of the First yeah. World War, when I think Europe in particular was eager for sort of news stories of a, of a swashbuckling nature that seemed to portray European uh, civilization in a, in a good light. But, you know, there's another very interesting dimension to the press coverage of, of the discovery, which is that Carnarvon, as, as patron of the excavation, signed an exclusive deal with the Times of London to, to, to cover the very latest news from the tomb. He did this without consultation with the Egyptian authorities, just off his own bat. And not only was this very disrespectful uh, to the Egyptian authorities, it infuriated the other media outlets who felt that they were denied access to uh, the biggest news story uh, in the world at the time. And so what one or two less scrupulous journalists did uh, to fill copy was to invent the story of the curse. And it was really as a, um, uh, as a response to being denied access to the, to the real story that they invented this great story that the, the tomb was somehow cursed. And of course, that story has run and run down, down the centuries since. Well, I'm glad you brought the curse up because I did want to ask you about it. Why did people say there was a curse? What was some of the evidence that they, they brought out, which obviously we're not giving credence to? Well, the, the evidence, of course, was, was discovered to fit the theory rather than the other way around. So let's not forget that the 1920s was also the era of the, uh, some of the first horror movies produced by Hollywood. So this whole idea of the mummy coming back to life as a, a sort of malevolent force, casting its curse on, on the people who had uh, disturbed its peace, that was part of the sort of Hollywood myth, myth of ancient Egypt. And so the discovery of a real tomb, of course, played into that narrative. Carter actually didn't help matters because he, he rather propagated the idea that there had been uh, some bad luck associated with the discovery of the tomb. His, his pet canary had died uh, and uh, he, he recounted a story that, you know, this was 
blamed on on a serpent, and of course there was a, a serpent on the the brow of the the statue of Tutankhamun as discovered in his tomb. So he he really fed this narrative that somehow it was cursed. And then of course when various people dropped dead from accidents and illnesses who had been associated with the tomb, the press leapt upon this and and used it as evidence that indeed that the tomb was cursed. But you know let's not forget that the greatest wish of of any Egyptian and particularly of an Egyptian pharaoh was to have their name spoken again after their death so that their name might live forever. So rather than being uh, uh, annoyed at his discovery, I think Tutankhamun would be absolutely delighted that we're still speaking his name 1,300 years after his death. Absolutely. (laughs) Were these ideas about Akers just purely whipped up by Western media? Were Egyptians just very dismissive of this idea? Well, the local Egyptian media sold ideas because you can tell the newspaper, of course, if you tell the story of Akers. So not just Western media, unfortunately. But there is some historical truth, by the way, to the idea of a curse. Toby and I would know that from ancient Egyptian text, there were uh, uh, sentences that gave rise to the fact that Egyptian cursed those who blundered their tombs. Uh, And we we saw several examples of this. So the ancient Egyptians themselves left the evidence that they were keen to curse anybody who will dare to cause evil uh, uh, to the tomb or blunder the tomb. However, as Toby points out, it wasn't helped by the fact that Lord Carnarvon himself died shortly afterwards. The electricity in Cairo went off, uh, his dog died somewhere. All these sort of accidental things, which had nothing to do with Ankaun, happened. And of course, this media leapt on this because it sold more copies. Uh, there was a famous Egyptian journalist called Anis Mansour in the 1960s and 70s. He wrote and many articles uh, and materials about the curse. So, yes, it, it, it was the time when the world had just come out of the world, War One, and they were desperate for something interesting, something exciting, something to take their mind off the horrors of the war. And that was a great opportunity. While unsealing the tomb may not have unleashed a deadly ancient curse, it did unleash a whole heap of trouble of another kind, as Carter became embroiled in a heated disagreement with the Egyptian government over what exactly should happen to the treasures and who they belong to. Egyptian antiquities law at the time stated that if an intact, undisturbed royal tomb was discovered, uh, its contents belonged to the Egyptian state. But if a plundered tomb was discovered, then the objects inside it would be divided between the discoverer uh, and, and, and Egypt. Now, of course, Carter had grown up in a world where archaeologists and their patrons were used to getting a share of anything that they discovered. And so he really felt that by right, he was entitled and Lord Carnarvon was entitled to a share of the objects from the tomb. And so he tried to emphasise the fact that the tomb had been broken into in antiquity to back up his claim that, no, this was a plundered tomb and therefore the law of division applied. But the Egyptian government, hot on the heels of of independence, um, uh, asserted that, no, this was an intact tomb and actually by law uh, the the contents belonged to to the people of Egypt. Um, uh, And there ensued a a great struggle, a a great row, um, a a court case, um, and at the end of the day, uh, Carter lost. Um, He wasn't a man who took losing uh, very well. 
And, and of course, there's there's also a, a, a political dimension to this because we mustn't forget that earlier in 1922, Egypt had become independent, and there was a great and growing sense that Egypt's past belonged to Egypt. So even though under the law of antiquities, a plundered tomb would uh, be distributed between the the excavator and and the government, there was a very strong feeling in Egypt at the time that actually this greatest of all discoveries belonged as part of Egypt's heritage to the Egyptian people. And it was really that that clash, if you like, of of antiquities, law and and custom with a, a newly independent Egypt wishing to assert its own national identity um, that you know led to the decision to keep the the collection intact in Egypt, which of course, I think we would all agree today was absolutely the right decision. At the time of Carter, as Toby pointed out, there was a lot of politics and Egypt had just gained its, well, theoretically independent from the British. And it was, you know, the revolution of 1919 and the, the stand against the British occupation all contribute to the feeling among Egyptians that we're being exploited and our history has been exploited. But the worst part of this was really, there wasn't any attempt on the part of the educational system to teach Egyptian anything about their own history. Therefore, there were no awareness of anything to do with history of Tutankhamun or others. Uh, but Sadaglu revolution of 1919 against the British occupation of Egypt and the immediate Carter's finding this tomb, it made Egyptians feel, ah, oh, we had a great past. Look at the great treasures. One minor pharaoh had, what about people like Ramses II or Amenhotep I mean, III? And that contributed to a new political atmosphere in which the whole question of who controls Egyptian archaeology, who controls Egyptian history, who is in charge of excavation. And there was a feeling among Egyptian, the very few Egyptian, like Ahmed Kamal Basha and Mohammed Shaban and others, that they were kind of sidelined by these Western people in charge of their own antiquities. And uh, some of them explained this very clearly. Uh, and some of them kind of uh, alluded to it in their own writings. So Carter found that tomb at a very critical juncture in the relationship between Egypt and both France and Britain. And I don't know, you could say he was lucky or unlucky, depending on how you view it. He thought he was unlucky because he was deprived of his share of, uh, of the tomb because of this political wrangling going on between Egyptian politicians Carter was so angry about this Egyptian decision that he actually closed the tomb and left the area by way of saying, well, this is my tomb. I excavated it and nobody else will touch it. And later, of course, he had been forced to hand the key in. And therefore, at the end of the day, he was forced to, to give up his claim. Uh, uh, and then he did a remarkable job. He, he finished the work. He, he published that famous book on, on the tomb. Every object left the tomb peacefully and safely to, to Cairo. And that's all thanks to him and his team. So although Carter may have been less than pleased with the result of his court tussle with the Egyptian government, our experts both agree that keeping Tutankhamun's treasures in the newly independent nation was the right move, helping foster Egyptian pride in a glittering national past. And both in Egypt and beyond, 
the treasures Carter and his team uncovered would go on to become archaeology's most iconic artefacts. It is the greatest archaeological discovery of all time in terms of the sheer quantity of objects, over five and a half thousand objects in the tomb. Never before and never since has an intact royal tomb been discovered in ancient Egypt. So in archaeological terms, it's, it's incredibly important. But it's important in another way, too. It's that it really marked the end of what we might call the heroic age of archaeology. Because of the complexity and the size of the discovery, Carter had to call upon a team of, of experts in lots of different disciplines, whether it was uh, archaeobotany, looking at the plant remains, or geology, people who are expert in, in deciphering uh, ancient inscriptions. And so it was a team effort to clear and publish the tomb. And, and I think never again, really, after the tomb of Tutankhamun's discovery, has it been possible for just one archaeologist to do everything uh, on a dig? So it marks a kind of turning point in the history of archaeology. And of course, its other great importance, and I'm, I'm sure Akasha will speak on this, is, is that coming hot on the heels of independence, it also marks the beginning of Egypt really reasserting its own identity and its own ownership over its past and the end of centuries of foreign exploitation of Egyptology. Absolutely. And this very good point is behind the fame of the tomb among Egyptians because it made them feel, here we are uh, under the feet of the British occupation. We're treated like nothing. And here is our golden past. Look at one minor pharaoh like Tutankhamun, who hardly ruled for what, less than a decade, uh, a little boy like him, and look what he left behind. Uh, and that is an indication of the great glory of the past of Egypt, and th that made Egyptians feel a sense of belonging to a golden age, a, a great history, uh, unlike the way British treat us. And I think if there's one lesson we should remember in this centenary year, it is to recognise the contribution of the Egyptians uh, to the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. Not least, of course, Hussein Abdul Rasul, the, the boy who discovered the first step uh, that led to the tomb. For me, it's, it's very poignant that the tomb of a boy pharaoh uh, should have been discovered by a young Egyptian boy, um, and that feels uh, entirely right and proper. So, yes, let's celebrate Carter and Carnarvon, but let's also celebrate the, the, the countless Egyptians, named and unnamed, um, who contributed to the discovery. Next week, we'll be heading back more than 3,000 years to explore Egypt in the age of Tutankhamun. We'll be looking at religious change, imperial expansion and the all-consuming job of being pharaoh. Many thanks to both my experts for today's episode, Dr. Okasha Eldali and Professor Toby Wilkinson. Okasha's books include Egyptology, The Missing Millennium, and Toby's latest book is Tutankhamun's Trumpet, The Story of Egypt in a Hundred Objects. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks by Rob Attar and Rob Blackmore. I hope you enjoyed this first episode in our new series on Tutankhamun. We'll be releasing episodes weekly on this feed, but if you just can't wait and you want to listen to the next five episodes now, you can do that by signing up to our premium subscription feed, History Extra Plus. 
There you can get early access to our series and ad-free access to all of our usual podcasts for just $1.99 a month. To find out more and sign up now, follow the link in this episode's podcast description.